0: I know some of us uh, participated in the meal of Messiah on the last day for the for the first time. Um, as we said last week, it's kind of a relatively new observance within some sects of, of Judaism and, and some within the messianic arena. Uh, but it's really a, a celebration looking forward to the return of Yeshua and the kingdom that he will establish here on the earth and looking for his righteous rule. So we really enjoyed doing that. And kind of uh, wrapping up Passover, remembering the redemption that we have uh, through Yeshua and looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment at the end of this age. And, you know, one of the things about what we're going to look at today within Parashat Shemini, it's speaking of the eighth day when the tabernacle had been set up permanently and the Aaronic priesthood was now stepping in to fill their role in, in worshiping God. And, and the whole reason that the tabernacle uh, was erected, that it was put into place on the earth was because it was God's desire to dwell among us. In Exodus 25, eight it's, the scripture says, and let them make a, me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And that's God's desire. And it's our desire for God to come and dwell in our midst as well. So we look forward to that. We we talk about it often on on Shabbat uh, in our services. We talk about the coming kingdom. We talk about the restoration of all things um, because that's our that's our hope is to see that fulfilled, to see Yeshua uh, here reigning from Jerusalem. And um, yeah. So even in the counting of the Omer, that's that's what we're looking forward to as well, part of the increase of the kingdom. So I want to start, uh, before we get into more of the parasha, is start out in our gospel reading today that was from the book of Matthew in chapter 3. So let's go there. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 through 17. John the Immerser is speaking to the people. And, you know, many people are coming to to John to be immersed in in repentance. And, And John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Yeshua arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Yeshua answering him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So so John was calling the people to repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. And we talked, you know, I think last week or maybe the week before about Elijah coming and and the spirit of Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Lord and how we're preparing our hearts uh, for receiving or coming king. Now, within this passage that we're reading, um, Yeshua came. John, John said, one is coming after me who will baptize you in the spirit and fire. And then Yeshua came and asked to be baptized by John. But John was hesitant to do so because here's Yeshua who is greater than John, who is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world doesn't need to be immersed for uh, any sin that he would have committed. Uh, He doesn't actually need to repent because he's already walking with the Lord. He doesn't have to turn from anything, but Yeshua says, permit it. It's good for both of us to fulfill all righteousness. And what's interesting there is John immersing Yeshua fulfilled righteousness Because the Messiah has to be proclaimed by a prophet. He has to be announced by a prophet. And so here's John, who is a prophet, and he is announcing Yeshua as the Messiah and and telling people here is the Lamb of God. And then, of course, the voice from heaven is the second confirming witness of who Yeshua is. But Yeshua's desire was to fulfill all righteousness and to do everything that had been set before him according to God's plan, according to the way God had ordained it to be done, right? Because, I mean, Yeshua come, could have come and said, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but instead he had John proclaim it, and then God himself proclaimed it from heaven. Now, when I was reflecting on, on this aspect of thinking, okay, well, here's Yeshua whose desire is to do all righteousness, um, and it's our desire to be immersed in Yeshua, right? To be identified with him in all things, in both his death and his resurrection. And part of that is to be identified with him in his willingness to do God's will and to set his heart on the things of the Father. So that we, would, we too would also hear the affirmation from the Lord of, well done, my good and faithful servant, as Yeshua spoke of in in parables in Matthew twenty five, of the the faithful, uh, the, the people who were faithful with the talents that He had given them, and saying, "Come into my Father's joy." All right. So, with the aspect of John talking about, you know, Yeshua would come, and He would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Certainly, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, uh, comes because yeshua was glorified and then sent the holy spirit as a sign of the covenant and those who believe on yeshua trusting in god receive the holy spirit now the fire aspect i was like well what exactly is the baptism with fire and from my understanding from what i've from what i've read this the fire aspect can be seen in two dimensions one you know, when Yeshua comes, it says that he will winnow with his winnowing fork and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. That separation is a judgment, you know, and the chaff that gets separated from the wheat is burned up in the fire. So that's a fire of judgment. But additionally, there's also a fire uh, that isn't unto destruction, but rather unto refining and purification, right? Because the scripture says that he will sit as a refiner and that, uh, you know, the silver is is heated until the dross comes op, up and can be scraped off, leaving pure silver behind. So even we, with this fire, become refined. So we get the Holy Spirit, and we also get this fire of refinement uh, in preparing us and, and making us pure before the Lord. Now, last week we talked about this journey that we're going on from, from Passover to Shavuot and how we're daily counting the Omer and we're going through a spiritual transformation and a preparation and a readiness. And I don't remember if we talked about the preparation for what, we, we probably did a little bit, but the preparation for what, what is that? Well, these 50 days of counting are leading up to Shavuot. And it's the time of God's covenantal increase when he gave the Torah and took Israel as his bride when he sent the Holy Spirit and initiated the new covenant through Yeshua. And and we begin to have the foretaste of that messianic era in this time. And so as we're approaching this time that God has set apart for this covenant increase, for this increase in relationship, increase in intimacy, that's what we're preparing for. We're preparing our hearts so that we would be changed Such that more of God can dwell in us, that we can reflect more of His light, that His kingdom could be manifested more greatly in us and through us. And I've been seeing this. uh, You know, we talked about this from Passover to Pentecost. I I saw that multiple times this week from from various ministries speaking about this time being a time of preparation and and increase. Um, I don't know if that comes up every year, but. It certainly seems to be a theme that, that many people, uh, prophets and ministries are picking up on that we just went through a, a Passover that was very unique, right? Because there was a, a plague and there was a passing over. God co- covering his people and and bringing us into a, a new arena, a new freedom. While, while we sit in our homes, it doesn't necessarily feel like freedom, right? But part of this is within... Within the process of redemption and setting his people free, there's also a time of judgment that comes. And the judgment for the wicked is destruction, but for the righteous, it's for purification. It's for preparation for something new. Even as the children of Israel walked through the wilderness for 50 days on their way to Sinai, they were being tested. It wasn't an easy journey. They were being tested along the way so that God would see, will they be faithful? Will they follow me? he brought them to sinai and entered into covenant so with us i just i see that as being what our our focus needs to be in this time of how are we preparing our hearts to enter into what god has for us next how are we setting ourselves aside for him during this week i noticed dreams began to increase at least for me i I don't know if that's a, a widespread thing but there was definitely an so something stirring more in the spirit this week, and this morning, <clears throat> I kept hearing over and over. I say it this morning in the night. I kept hearing, draw near, draw near, draw near, and when I was hearing that, I was recognizing it with how the book of Vayikra or Leviticus starts out talking about how we're to draw near to God through bringing offerings and and how He's provided the means and the way for us to draw near. You know, we've referred to uh, James 4, 8 multiple times, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's this aspect of he provides the means by which we can come to him. And now it's up to us to take the action of drawing near that will then he in in response will draw near to us more so. That's what we're seeing here in the book of Exodus and now leading into Leviticus is Moses and the people were preparing a dwelling place for God such that he could draw near with his divine presence onto the earth. so he provided the way for them to do it. He gave them the instructions, then they begin to carry out the instructions through creating the tabernacle, through anointing the priesthood, setting up the tabernacle, and then god's presence comes right so again, just the same theme of this is all about preparing a sanctuary for God so that he may dwell in our midst. And last night we were we were talking during uh, during our Shabbat dinner about how thankful we are that even during this time of isolation, we've been walking through the seasons of the Lord and his cycles and how much the cycles that he's ordained from the beginning keep us connected to him. Right. Every week we're having our Shabbat meal, which is Coincidentally proclaiming the coming messianic era, the coming kingdom, right It's the seventh day of the week, it's the day of rest in six days, God created the heaven heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested from all his creating right so you know we've talked about this too, I'm sure, but the six days of of creation represent six millennia of of mankind, followed by a seventh thousand years that is the reign of Yeshua. It's a a period wherein the world begins to enter into a Sabbath rest. So every week we're getting to proclaim that kingdom. Every week we're getting reconnected with God. During the counting of the Omer, every day we're proclaiming his goodness and and crying out for him to be known amongst all the nations. And of course, during Passover, we're continually remembering our, our Savior Yeshua. And so anyway, it's it's great that in this time we have so much that's drawing our focus to the Lord. I think it's purposeful, right, that um, if there's any time for God to send his people into isolation, it would be in a time where we're being refined and made ready for a new beginning that's to come. So God wants to dwell with us, and our parasha this week uh, is called Shemini, which is the eighth. Okay. It, this begins after the week of inauguration of the temple. So for a seven-day period, Moses would set up the tabernacle, perform all the offerings, and take it down. And at the same time, he was anointing the priesthood and setting them apart. So for a seven-day period, the tabernacle and the priesthood are being made ready. And now on this eighth day, we're now moving into the time when Aaron and his sons are going to take over all the duties of the offerings within the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is now set up permanently. Now, when I say it's set up permanently, uh, we know that the tabernacle was taken down and it was moved any anytime the children of Israel journeyed. But at this point, it was like the prior seven days, the tabernacle had been set up and taken down. It was a, it was a temporary setup and that it was only for a day. And then on this eighth day, it was established, and then it did not uh, get taken down until the cloud lifted and the children of Israel journeyed on from there. All right, so I want to turn to Leviticus 9. We're going to take a look at a few verses here. Leviticus 9, 1 through 7. Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, come near, which, you know, is draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the lord has commanded the scripture then goes on to explain how aaron brought all of these offerings and then it continues here in verse 22 then aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings moses and aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people the glory of the lord appeared to all the people then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces.
1: That part gives me shields. Oh, I love it. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's such a big deal. Like, I mean, think about it to behold the glory of the Lord descending on the tabernacle and the fire of the Lord coming out to consume the offerings. I, I don't think we have a, uh, a framework for understanding just how magnificent that would have been, <laughs> how awe-inspiring it would have been, How actually how fearful, you know, to tell you the truth. I mean, when you see the fire coming out and consuming everything, you might fall to your face. <laughs> you might just fall to your face. One, to, you know, in uh, thinking, I hope the fire doesn't come any further, <laughs> right? That it'll be contained right there. But yeah, it had to be amazing. Now, there's there's different opinions on what this eighth day was. You know, was it the eighth day of Nisan or was it the eighth day of the consecration of, or, you know, of the consecration of the tabernacle. Uh, Some of the sages say that the eighth day here spoken of was actually on the first of Nisan, and that the tabernacle was established permanently on the first of Nisan, whereas the seven days prior had started at Adar 23, going through the, the rest of the month of Adar. Others think that the first of Nisan was the first day that Moses uh, established the tabernacle f- on a temporary basis. And on the eighth day, it became uh, permanently established. I, I don't know the answer, but when I was looking at this and, and thinking of the symbolism of it, I I felt like there might be a picture of all of creation and the coming kingdom. Now, so I'm going to explain this in kind of like it, It's an analogy and illustration doesn't mean it's literally correct or that all of it has to fit together perfectly. It's kind of like what Diego talked about last week when he noted that the parables that are given by Yeshua, they aren't all intended to be like word for word, literally able to apply. Instead, the parable is supposed to teach an overarching issue and it's the overarching issue that is that is the key not necessarily all the individual components being able to line up with something perfectly. But with this, I was thinking about this. The eighth day is a day of new beginnings. Once the tabernacle was established permanently and the priesthood was established, something new was taking place that was different from what had taken place before. And I was thinking about in all of creation, right? You have the six days where God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested he rested from his creating it doesn't mean that he wasn't active on the seventh day it's that he was not uh creating and then on the eighth day there was a new week you know start the first day of the week is the eighth day and i was considering about how when we look at the six millennia the six one thousand year periods of man Right, that we are in and coming toward the end of, and then the seventh millennium of Yeshua, then you can say, All right, well, we've got our, our 6,000 years of man, and then that seventh thousand years, that's a day of rest. It's also the messianic era when Yeshua reigns for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, that's when the new heavens and the new earth descend. Okay, the temporary. Which is this earth is replaced by a new heavens and an earth that does not pass away, right? So, just like the tabernacle was set up and taken down for seven days, all at the hand of Moses, right? And then the eighth day, it's established permanently. I I see that kind of like a parallel with creation, where the word of God has been living and active from before creation, has been living and active throughout all these six millennia and will again be living and active in the flesh through the person of yeshua in that seventh in that sabbatical thousand years followed by the new heavens and a new earth and what comes at that new heavens and the in the new earth is heaven and earth come together the dwelling place of god comes to earth right that's what it says in revelation and and now God and the lamb are the temple right and and that is the light to all the world so there's this new beginning after that 7000 years on the eighth millennium so I don't know if I explained that very well but uh definitely you know God's purpose is to restore the earth and to dwell with man and the establishment here of the tabernacle was a first fruits of that if you will and it gives us an illustration kind of of the overall macro view of God's plan of restoration of these thousand year reigns. Now the the eighth millennium is not a millennium. It's you know, beyond, but it's a new beginning, something to come after this temporary world and to be perfected. So it's a cool thing. Uh, at least I hope y'all thought it was, but anyway, now going forward from there, uh, we're going to continue on and we're going to look a little bit at the death of Nadab and, and Abihu in Leviticus 10. All right, so everything, the glory of the Lord has just come. Fire has consumed the offerings. And now we pick up in Leviticus 10 right after that it says, now, now Nadab And Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his son Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation." But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. So Nadab and Abihu there's many, many thoughts as to what happened. You know, why did they bring strange fire before the Lord? And there's, there's some opinions that uh, they acted sinfully and were destroyed by it. There's others that look and say, well, Moses just honored Nadab and and Abihu and saying that they were those uh, closest to the Lord, that God was sanctified through those who are close to him who draw near to him. And, Others also say, well, they were, you know, just exuberant in their desire to come near to the Lord and to honor him and to bring him a sacrifice. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe uh, talks about their desire to be like to have their essence with God was so great that they went into his presence and, and were struck down. And their, their goal was ultimately fulfilled because, well, they were struck down and then with him. but that that desire uh, was not God's desire, that his desire would have been to dwell with them, not to bring them to be with him, right? Uh, Because God would work through them on the earth to bring more of his presence into it. Sorry, interesting, interesting thoughts. And Ben, did you have something? No, Okay. All right. But one of the things that really struck me in the story here was Moses telling Aaron and his sons not to mourn Nadab and Abihu, not to even go out of the tent of meeting, but to remain. And how difficult it must have been for them to do that, to be able to set aside what they're all their feelings, all their emotions, and to be able to continue on in their service of the Lord in that moment. Um, but but they did it. You know, they were able to set aside all of that and to do the will of God. So I, I just thought about, you know, they Moses warned them, it's because you have this special anointing on you you, you can't leave the temple. You can't Uh, do this morning. You have to stand fast. And the special anointing requires a special endurance. It requires a special, uh, it has a special responsibility that goes with it. And they were able to stand up within that. I also thought about, you know, a special anointing actually brings with it also special, special rules, special obligations. Uh, back in, back in my days when at Texas A&M, when I was in the Corps of Cadets, you know, as you go through the years, you gain higher rank and with it, you get greater privileges. You know, when you start out, you barely have any privileges. It's uh, pretty bare bones and, and miserable early on. But as you go up in rank you, you gain more privileges. And so it would be common for an upperclassman to like, say a senior to say to a junior the senior gets to do more, he'd say, well, rank has its privileges. And the common response to that is, well, rank has its responsibilities, right? To remind the one who has these special privileges that also what comes with that is greater responsibility. And it's the same way within our our covenant relationships with God, right? You see a progressive of the covenants that he's given through time. And every time that he's moved forward in bringing people closer to him into greater covenant into greater intimacy and relationship there's also greater standards and responsibility for those people to walk in and that's one of the things that was happening at Mount Sinai is many more of the responsibilities of those who were walking with God who had become his bride were, were given to the people that they could walk in God's ways such that they could engage him in a greater level of intimacy. And then even within the people then you had uh, the priesthood, the Levites that were set apart and the Aaronic priesthood. and to each of those groups, because they were coming even nearer to God than the common Israelite, they had greater rules of sanctification and purity uh, that had to take place. They had to remain in a higher degree of ritual holiness to be able to come into God's presence. So even the aspect of, of chosenness has a greater responsibility. It has its privileges and it has its responsibilities. Now, in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, the scripture says, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now this, this quote, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I mean, th- this is a call. Well, here, let me. So, what is holiness, right? That's that's the first question. Now, holiness is being set apart. It's being something that is holy is not common. Okay, that often we hear like something that is holy and something that's profane. Uh, the profane does not necessarily mean corrupt. It just means not holy. It's common. Okay. Uh, we speak often about the Sabbath being a holy day. It's a holy day because it is set apart from all the other days. God made it unique and distinct by making it a day that he rested upon and that he then gave to the children of Israel as a day of rest such that they then too would make the day holy, setting it apart from all the others being unlike all the others. And so then God calls us to be holy. He calls us to be separate and distinct from the world in a, in a wide array of, of uh, well, in, in, in various ways of being set apart, right, from, um, from our thoughts and our behaviors, um, through uh, acts of morality, acts of righteousness, kindness, things of that nature, which would set us apart from g- just a general uh moral code and within this call to be holy peter is quoting directly from scripture where he says he says as it is written you shall be holy for i am holy now i'm aware of three places in the scripture that he could have been quoting directly from and all the quotes come from the book of leviticus and so I'll take a quick look at those here in Leviticus 11:45 through 44. The Lord says, for I am the Lord, your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then in Leviticus 19, 2, he says, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Sounds a little bit different, but still very close. And then Leviticus 20, 26, thus you are to be holy to me for I, the Lord am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So the one that most closely closely mirrors it is from this week's uh, portion. but then. Leviticus 19 verse 2 and Leviticus 20 verse 26 serve as bookends of descriptions of holiness in, in one of the parashas that we're going to come to in the coming weeks, Ketoshim. But within that passage, within the passage of Leviticus 19 through 20, there's a, a list that God makes of, of various things that set his people apart as being holy and this one specifically like in, in this week's portion is stated right after all of the laws of kashrut all the kosher laws have been expounded upon and even in leviticus 20 in 19 and 20 in that passage again the laws of kashrut the law the kosher laws of eating are again listed right next to the call to be holy so it's it's interesting that that would be highlighted in this week's portion of, of what does holiness look like, right? Holiness, even in what we eat, right? Now within the laws of, of what to eat and the ritual defilement that one, one would incur from touching the carcass of one of the, of a, of a dead animal, a lot of those rules about, uh, clean and unclean were, were with respect to ritual defilement for being able to come into God's presence. Okay. The ritual defilement that one would undergo from, uh, from partaking of these things or of touching the carcasses would prevent them from being able to come into God's presence. And so I, I see a connection there with, with the death of Nadab and Abihu is that they had done something contrary to the command of the Lord, and that actually prevented them from being able to come into his presence without dying, right? Even one with, with ritual defilement cannot go into God's God's presence. So that was practical application of the time of the temple. People who came in contact with the, the carcasses, they would be unclean until the evening, And then they would have, if they had lifted the carcass, then they would have to immerse their clothes and themselves. Otherwise, if they had touched it but not carried it, then they would just have to immerse. But anyway, that would then make them, again, ritually fit to come into the presence of God. So in today's time, you know, what significance do these, these kosher laws have? Well, there's, there's many, uh, many, many commentaries that, that speak on the spiritual significance of the kosher laws in the aspect of keeping our temples pure, right? Keeping ourselves, our bodies pure from all defilement. And some of the illustrations given within this is the idea of partaking of things that ritually defile us dulls our senses and ability to hear from the Lord. Now, how much? I don't know, right? But it, the, the, the concept there is anytime that we walk outside of the commands of God, we are dulling our senses. We're putting up barriers that prevent us from coming into his presence. And so within these aspects of, of holiness that God lays out, He's showing us the way in order that we are to cleanse our temples, to keep our temples pure so that we can come into his presence and not have any of our relationship hindered with him. So be holy for he is holy so that we might actually create a dwelling place for him, that we might have intimacy and relationship with him. It's submitting to the will and command of God so that we become a willing vessel in all things, just as Yeshua was, just as Aaron and his sons demonstrated in remaining silent and carrying on in their daily duties. (laughs) Now, within speaking of of the the kosher laws, we haven't often gone into a discussion of what did Yeshua say about it, Uh, but we're going to do that a little bit here today because I think the story, the parable that Yeshua gives with regard to eating and what defiles by coming in versus what defiles by coming out is very relevant from the aspect of how we prepare ourselves and what does ritual defilement look like. Right. Okay. So Mark chapter seven, verse one through 23, I'm going to read this whole incidents here. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him When they had come from jerusalem gathered around yeshua when they had come from jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands or unclean hands that is unwashed for the pharisees and all the jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thus observing the traditions of the elders and when they had come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unclean hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are expert experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that, that would help is korban, that is to say given to God. Now, korban is... Uh, The word for um, an offering, like a a burnt offering given to God, something that's totally given unto the Lord. It comes from the root word of karav, which is to draw near. Like they're saying that this is something for drawing near. And so I can't give that to my mother or father. He said, by doing this, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down. and And you do many things such as that. So that was his response to the, to the Pharisees about the eating with unwashed hands. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. All right. So <clears throat> having read through that, we should have several questions, right? Um, one, let's just kind of start back at the beginning and say, what is the issue that the Pharisees have, right? The the issues, the issue that the Pharisees had in this case is that the disciples were eating with unclean hands. That is, they had not washed them. So according to the tradition, there would be, there's a tradition of, of doing a ritual cleansing of your hands before the eating of bread, okay? And they weren't doing this. The issue was not the question of what the disciples were eating. It was the manner in which they were eating. Okay. And so Yeshua's response to the to the Pharisees in this case was a challenging to them of what their prioritization is. He's saying, you have elevated your traditions over the commandments of God. And you ought not to do that, that the commandments of God should take precedence and should stand and should not be set aside so that you can carry out your tradition. So he didn't he didn't directly address to them in his first statement why it was okay for his disciples to not follow the traditions of the elders. Instead, he rebuked them for their practices, which elevate traditions of man over commandments of God. Okay. And then as we go forward, Yeshua then begins to give a a parable to the people who were there. And he said, he then began to say, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him. Okay. If it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. And he explains here in verse 19, he says that, you know, what's gone in doesn't go into the heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And then what we have here with the, thus he declared all foods clean is a grievous, uh, misinterpretation of the scripture. Okay. And I say it's grievous because of the implications of what a translation like this, uh, would tell, which I'll, i kind of come back to, but if we would actually look at what the Greek says, it doesn't say, thus he declared all foods clean. In fact, like within this passage here where we see it in italics where it says, thus he. Thus he means that the, interp- the interpreter put that in there. And even the word declared is not in the Greek, okay? Funny enough. The all foods clean, okay, actually says purging the meats, okay? Okay. So if we were to read this according to like what the literal Greek says, it would say it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is purged, eliminating all the meats. Okay, It becomes one consistent thought where he says that the process is it goes into your mouth, it goes into your stomach, it then passes through your bowels into the latrine, purging all the foods from your body. What chapter is
1: that? I'm sorry.
0: This is Mark seven. Okay. Verse 19. Yep. So what's happened here and it's actually influenced a lot of interpretation and, and theology about the status of foods comes from this kind of misinterpretation um, of the passage. So he's really just talking about, look, this thing, what you eat does not stay in you, right? But the things that are in your heart do remain in you. Okay. So what, what remains in you and proceeds out of you, that's what defiles when we engage in this list of things that are not walking in holiness that Yeshua puts out here, the evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murders, adulteries, and so on. Those are, you know, we could take those and we could put those, you know, not necessarily in parallel, but we could line up a lot of these with what's listed in Leviticus 19 and 20, you know, which I mentioned before is bookended by God's call, call for us to be holy, that we don't participate in these things so that we, uh, we ourselves are set apart so that we can be in God's presence. So Yeshua is pointing to these issues of the heart that That remain in a man that are that are the defiling things now so I just explained a little bit about the problem with interpretation here that there is nothing that says he declared all foods clean for one thing um, if he were to if he were to declare all foods clean, then he would actually be um, he would be abolishing. commandment of God, actually multiple commandments of God. Now, how ironic would it be if Yeshua just rebuked the Pharisees for elevating the tradition of man over the commandments of God to set aside a commandment of God, not just to do away with it, just set it aside, you know, because the command to honor your father and mother still stands. How, How crazy would it be for him then to turn and outright abolish a number of commandments of God? I mean, He just called them hypocrites for setting aside a commandment of God in favor of tradition. How much more would a hypocrite be of rebuking one for doing that and then going a step further and abolishing multiple commandments? And then the scripture doesn't says nothing about him being accused of abolishing commandments. You know, the Pharisees were quick to try to point out something that Yeshua did wrong. Right within the they continually tried to find him, tried to trap him. The Sadducees did as well, trying to trap him in breaking Shabbat and uh, a whole number of things. Why would they not call him out on revoking and abolishing commandments of God? It's because in this time he was not abolishing the commandments of God. He was not declaring that you could eat unclean meats. He was declaring that eating with unwashed hands is not an issue. And that the real issue is what's in your heart. He was not making a statement on the foods and we can get that. Actually, I'm going to jump forward to the story. This story is also paralleled in Matthew. uh, Just real briefly, you know, Yeshua called the crowd to him in Matthew 15 verse 10. He said here and understand it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth This defiles the man. And he continues. It says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness and slanders. He says, these are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Note, Yeshua didn't say to eat unclean meats does not defile the man he brings it back to what was the issue the issue was eating with unwashed hands does not defile you okay because that which you eat passes through your body it does not remain so the uh the uncleanness of your hands does not remain in you so um i hope i explained that
1: also to uh, the practice of eating with with washing your hands first before eating comes from the priestly practice. This is one thing that the Levites were out to do before uh, partaking of the uh, offering in the temple. And one of the traditional practices that developed from the temple was that, is that a lot of the things that were practiced in the temple, the Pharisees took and decided to take it upon themselves. Mm -hmm. And later it was extended outside of temple practices has something equal to a Torah commandment, when in reality it was just a traditional practice that was developed from temple practices. And they were accusing the disciple based on something that had been developed as a traditional practice and say, hey, why are you not following Torah? When in reality, it wasn't really a Torah violation, it was a traditional violation that we're judging based on
0: yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah, that's it's really helpful to to know that and take that into consideration. And so you know there there are other passages that we could take a look at too that have been mi- misunderstood. Uh, one of course is in acts ten. We, we won't go there right now, but we know the story about the the uh, the sheet that Peter saw in a vision coming down from heaven. And on it were all kinds of animals and creeping things. And the Lord told him, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter said, Lord, by no means, I've I've never eaten anything unclean or common, right? And of course, this, this happened to him years after Yeshua had ascended, yet Peter still remained faithful in keeping the commandments of the Torah, including the laws of Kashrut or the kosher laws. Now, within that Acts 10 passage, he sees it come down three times. And then three men show up, three Gentiles show up. And the scripture twice says that that the Holy Spirit showed Peter that it was indicative of not calling Gentiles unclean or common. And nowhere does does the scripture say that Peter then said, "Okay, well, then it must mean that all the animals are clean, too, because, again, the vision was not intended to have a literal interpretation or application across every arena. It was intended to teach the point that the Holy Spirit revealed that the Gentiles were not to be called unclean or common and that Peter could go with them and that then God poured out his spirit on them again as a testimony that they were not to be called unclean or common. And then uh, Revelation, excuse me, Romans fourteen as well. uh We won't go and look at that one either. But there's just multiple times where what we've read in the scriptures has been twisted to fit an idea that certain commandments have gone away, particularly with response with regard to uh, what is a clean or unclean animal for the aspects of. Uh, ritual purity and of, of the eating. But what we have to consider very importantly goes back to what I mentioned about Yeshua. He would, he wasn't accused of having abolished commandments of God in that statement. If he had actually abolished a commandment of God, Then he would have been sinning according to the scriptures. And if he was sinning according to the scriptures, then he could not be the Messiah, which is why I said that there was such a grievous mistranslation there in the scripture, because the the people who were doing the interpretation in seeking to honor Yeshua dishonored him by misrepresenting his actions and actually putting something forward that would be a disqualification of him being the Messiah and the hope of our salvation, our our coming King. That's certainly not the intention.
2: Chris, Chris, I think you're being far too gentle. It was an outright fabrication insertion of something that was never intended to be there, nor was it in the earlier manuscripts, according to my study. So clearly, in the 1611 and some of the mid-century codes, yeah. it was not there before, but then it was added later. So I think you're being overly kind to the fact that this was yeah. a mistranslation. It was never meant to
1: be there in the first place. I, I'm glad you brought that up, Mr. David, because you're older and you're wiser. I didn't want to say it because I'm so I'm too young and I don't want to say that, but you're right. <laughs> it was added. That, that wasn't even there in the early minus and based on the people's uh, understanding of Jesus, uh, they added that, that verse to the Bible uh, to support their theology. That's, that's, the, that's true.
0: Yeah, so grievous. Grievous. And so, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, was going too soft there. Because <laughs> the thing is, we, we have to defend our Messiah, right? He already has enough people coming at him to say that he's not the Messiah. He doesn't need his followers being in agreement with them and bringing new accusations to him that weren't even brought to him at the time. Right. And, uh, the same thing with Paul, right. With, uh, with his writings, many people try to take his writings and say that the Torah he, he's saying that the Torah is done away with, well, that's what he was accused of by, uh, by people who didn't follow Yeshua So it's terrible for us to then join with them in the accusations and saying that Paul did not uphold Torah. So anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's an important thing for us to know. It's an important thing for us to study and understand what the scriptures are, are saying such that we can give a defense of, of our Messiah and of, of the word that's been given to us that we're to uphold.
1: Now also to also to, um, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees, because sometimes we, we think of the Pharisees as every single one of them accusing Yeshua. But uh, the Pharisees could not find fault in Yeshua. They tried, but nothing that he did or said was against uh, Judaism of that time. But the Pharisees were judging him based on other things, trying to find him guilty. So they can accuse him and then put him to death. But they couldn't. They tried their best. So their last resource was to bring him to Rome and accuse him of violating Rome uh, rules. What does that say? That says that everything that Yeshua said and taught was within Judaism, that if he would have done something in violation with the Torah or with the tradition of man of that time, then they would have had the right to accuse them and put him to death but he wasn't even teaching nor living out anything against the tradition of man or the the, the commandments of torah that was their last, that was their last resource it was to bring him to rome and have him crucified because he was a jew he was living out torah he was practicing the tradition of man to the T. So the the Pharisees, all they could do is, why your disciples, why your disciples are doing this, why your disciples. But it's, it, it was never an accusation directly to him as saying, why are you not washing your hands? Why are you? It was more towards his disciple that he has selected. That from what I have understood and what I have learned is that the disciple were not as observant as the Pharisees were. So, some of the things that the Pharisees were doing, the disciples of Yeshua were not practicing uh, as far as the traditional aspect of it. But even even Paul, too, the same thing. Uh, If we join the understanding that he did away with Torah, that he declared fools unclean, then uh, the Pharisees would have have a right and, and, and a case to put him down. But that never happened. So our understanding must be wrong if that's the case. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we will think that if if that was true, that Jesus was the teaching against uh, the kosher uh, meats and kosher and food, that he was teaching against the law, then it would have been it would have been super easy for the Pharisees to put him down uh, and to shut him up. And you know, so it's it's kind of strange how we. There are people who believe these things, but they don't make the connection that the whole purpose of the Pharisees always creating arguments was to put him down, to to stop his ministry, to stop him from 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 accomplishing his 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 goal, etc. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, that's excellent, Diego, and that that's absolutely right, and. So again we 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 need to be able to defend our Messiah, you know. And so knowing the scriptures, knowing what's in the Torah is key for us to be able to understand Yeshua's writings or his sayings and Paul's writings. If we read what Yeshua said without the context of the Torah, if we read what Paul wrote without the context of what Yeshua said and the Torah, then we will come to wrong conclusions okay We have to guard our hearts against that and this idea that Yeshua ever would have done away with a, with, a, with a commandment or with it, with the, those uh, laws like like David said those are things that were put in our mouth by mistranslation. We need to get rid of that it's got to go it's got to pass through us so that what remains in our heart is that which is true and something that is honoring to God to his word and to Yeshua within all this okay so kind of back to what was yeshua saying with this illustration right again it's what was inside what was coming from the heart these evil thoughts these murders adulteries things like that that's what defile a man and prevent a man from being able to draw near to the lord to be in relationship with him to have this intimacy and so when we think about you know during this time of preparation, this in this season of leading up to Shavuot, into this season of looking forward to our coming King and greater relationship with Him, w- what are we going to do? You know, with these things that do defile within our heart, I, we go radical on them, right? We we uproot them and cast them out, and we seek to press in. To what the lord has given us what he's shown us which is good and to accept his yoke upon our shoulders his words his commandments and walk in them you know we we don't do this radical thing like nadab and abihu did of rushing in with something that was uh would have been profaning because it's outside of what god had called for but we go through with what he has called us to he says you shall be holy for i am holy you shall be set apart because God is set apart in, in all of our ways, in, in our actions, in our thoughts, uh, in our relationships. And then in doing this, we become transformed in the spirit and we become found faithful before the Lord such that just like what Yeshua said to his servants who had been faithful with the talents where he in matthew 25 21 he said well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over a little i will set you over much enter into the joy of your master you know you've been faithful over a little well this world this temporary world that's the little that we've been given to be faithful with and there's there's something far greater that is coming that we will be given charge over in the, in the world to come, right? In, in the millennial kingdom reigning with Yeshua and in the world to come, those are the things that that are greater, but, but now be faithful what we're given because when we're faithful with what we're given, we're given more, right? With the dreams he gives you with the uh, words that you receive in, in prayer with your revelations, you get in the study of the word, the more you press into that, the more you're going to be given, right? Show yourself faithful and don't grow, don't grow weary of doing good. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So in this time, don't lose heart. You know, um, as, as we, we read in Psalm 91, you know, the, the world may be falling all around us. There may be all kinds of challenges, but we are to remain strong and keep our eyes fixed on Yeshua to, to have our hope firmly established and to be looking for ways of pressing in. I know that if, if you're still looking at the counting the Omer meditations on Aish or some other site, you know, this week we're focused on discipline. And the discipline of, I mean, discipline is such a key part, right? Last week we focused on love. This week we're focusing on discipline and, and how we're going to establish disciplines that will enable us to move forward in the spirit, to move forward in uh, in our relationships with one another, with God. So don't lose heart. Keep pressing forward. There is a great reward. And I think this is a time that is anointed for progressing and moving up uh, into into higher realms with the Lord. So, amen. Any, anybody else have additional thoughts?
3: Hey, Chris, it's Ben. Hey Ben. Hey, so i really enjoyed this uh, this uh, sermon today, and it made me think of some of the conversations uh, I've had with my dad, you know, over the last couple of weeks and everything as well too. And one of them, I guess, there's two to three things that really just made me have questions on practicality, like how do you? It's one thing; it's great learning these things, but then it's after we leave this group. How do we go walk it out, you know, and how do we love people in the same sense and do that? So I'm just trying to figure out practical ways of how to, you know, I don't want to say defend my faith because I don't need to defend God at the end of the day. But when we get into these conversations with relatives or friends or individuals of, you know, that are, who think different because they take what that interpretation was, you know, to heart and they defend it themselves at the end of the day, you know, I'm guessing it's just one of those processes where you just have to pray that, you know, A, we can come to a common grounds or we pray that the Holy Spirit moves and opens the door because, you know, there's some people that think I'm right, you know, in my beliefs, but, and I used sit back and say, well, I'm pretty sure I feel right in my beliefs, you know, and, uh, you know, what I can, but I'm just trying to figure out from a practicality way, how to walk this out and show love and not show judgment to people. Does that make sense? What I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. It's a great question, Ben. And so I'll kind of, I'll answer it with something that the Lord said to me a while back. Um, So when I, early on in the years, when I was coming to this understanding and, and this faith um, the Lord told me to start writing a blog. And so I started writing a blog, uh, of devotionals of whatever he would show me. And there were many things that I uh, was learning and some things I was angry about, you know, and wanted to to call the church out on and, and so forth. But the Lord told me not to write about those things. What he told me to do was to write about the beauty of of what God has done and what he has created such that people would behold that beauty. And then through that, they would see the difference and they would turn away from uh, what did not have the beauty and turn to that which had a greater, greater beauty. Does that make sense? So, and, and later on, I was actually really thankful that I didn't go through and write some of the things, but rather had the focus of, how do i just lift high the name of the lord before others and so thinking on this if you've got somebody who really has this theology in their heart about torah done away with or uh, kosher laws being done away with then going directly at it and trying to sit down and, and work through the verses like i just did probably isn't going to be the most effective means because Beyond Mark 7, you've got Romans 14, and then you've got 1 Corinthians 8, and then you've got Acts 10, and then you've got many other epistles of Paul, which often the epistles of Paul are the foundations of people's faith. Where it's it's totally backwards, right? I mean that that, that should be the beginning grounds or the foundation of faith, but that's that's often the case. So one way I think that you can go about it within the scriptures is to uh, talk about who the Messiah is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do, right? So if you go back into that, if you started out with, well, look, Messiah is expected to come as the redeemer that follows on the footsteps of Moses and do what he did, but to a greater level. What did Moses do? He led the people into relationship with God, gave them the Torah, told them to walk faithfully in it right? Interceded for them. Um, anyway, many, many things like that. And even getting into the scriptures that say, look, if anyone like Deuteronomy 13, great passage for understanding the accusations against Yeshua, because if any of the accusations against Yeshua, whether brought by the Pharisees, Sadducees, or believers today, if any of them prove to be true, then by Deuteronomy 13, Yeshua would be shown to be a false prophet. And just real briefly, since since I'm going since I'm talking about that, I just want to share this passage. Deuteronomy 13:2 says, "If there should stand up in your midst a prophet or a dreamer of a dream and he will produce to you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder comes about of which he spoke to you, saying, let us follow gods of others that you do not know and we will worship them." Do not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of a dream for the Lord, your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul, the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God shall you follow and him shall you fear his commandments shall you observe and to his voice shall you hearken. Okay. He says, him shall you serve and to him shall you cleave and that prophet and that dreamer of a dream shall be put to death for he has spoken perversion against the Lord, your God. Okay, so this is speaking very much to a prophet who would show up, perform signs and wonders, heal people, raise the dead, do any kind of sign or wonder, but tell the people not to follow God's Torah. That's a false prophet. That person is worthy of death. That's what the scripture says. Okay, so if we say that Yeshua came and did all these miraculous wonders and did away with the Torah and then say, I don't understand why the Jews can't realize that he was the Messiah. (laughs) It's like, well, I don't know why they would accept him as the Messiah, because he's clearly the false prophet as the scriptures state. Okay, now, but God forbid that that would ever be the case, because he is the true prophet. You know, Yeshua is the true prophet. He has upheld the Torah. He's one who did signs and wonders and told the people to be faithful to God and to the Torah. He's done... All that Messiah was expected to do. Now we need to get on board with that and uphold it and affirm him in it. So even just bringing that revelation to someone and saying, if he did away with any of them, he can't be Messiah. That could be something that might begin to open a door to uh, tearing down some of these walls of commandments and set them apart. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's maybe I at mean, a yeah. different angle yeah. in, and adding a new understanding that gives beauty and clarity to who Messiah is supposed to be.
4: And I say also in Acts um, 17, 10 and 11 is where Paul is talking about the Bereans. And it says Paul and Silas were sent to Berea upon arrival. They made their way to the Jewish synagogue. Now, those were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the message with goodwill searching the scriptures each day to see whether these things were true. So Paul is, well, they're being praised for taking Paul's message and validating it with the scriptures. So if that's a praiseworthy thing, that shows that the the scriptures, which they're talking about the Old Testament, is the foundation by which then we should check Paul's messages, not the other way around. Which is what you described a lot of Christianity how it uses Paul's message as the foundation and checks the rest of the scripture by that. Uh,
1: excuse me.
5: That's really good.
1: Oh. Um, That's I, I? Oh, sorry. Uh, go
0: ahead, Go ahead, Omid. And then we'll go to Diego.
5: Okay, sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Diego. Um, no, I wanted to comment that uh, because one scripture that's always brought up for me, too, is, you know, that in Matthew five seventeen that when she was saying, I did not come to, to abolish the Torah, but I came to fulfill. And that's one that's always brought up, like, look, he came to fulfill. What does fulfill mean? But even if I just if we go read a little bit further in that same passage, then it says in the very next verse on on 19, it'll say, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think that in and of itself is a great scripture just to like read a little bit further and he's going to talk to you. Describe exactly what that's talking
3: about.
6: Also, great point, Heather.
4: Excellent point.
5: Can I just also, real quick, say I, I agree. I wanted to piggyback on what uh, Diego was saying when he was talking about the Pharisees uh, and how they're picking out uh, what what they would be saying to um, what they were coming against with Yeshua's disciples. And doesn't it make sense, though, that, you, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but Yeshua brought, took people who were, these guys were fishermen. These guys were commoners who now became his disciples. They were not students of other Pharisees or rabbis in the in Be- Beit Midrash. So they would have been learning all the traditions, so to speak, of, of those particular rabbis. And now you have his disciples who are not picking up on those, so those are what's being critiqued of them. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I think that's what I was picking up so just kind of question as well
0: <laughs> yeah i mean in that in that line you're right they they were not people who had advanced within uh within their knowledge and understanding to a level where they would be following. Uh, one of the primary established rabbis, right? They were all going about their family business, which means they didn't make the cut. They weren't of the highest caliber that would have been selected by a rabbi to follow, or that, that would have, you know, the way it worked is a, is a one a disciple would go, or a person who wanted to be a disciple would go to a rabbi and say, "Can I follow you?" The rabbi would test them, and then if they passed the test, would say, "Yes, you can follow me," right? and apparently these people did not make the cut with ha- showing the aptitude to follow these other rabbis and so then yeshua went and called them to follow him and so then they were learning uh from yeshua outside of the schools of the other uh pharisees yeah.
5: right yeah, yeah
0: yeah and then diego you had something you wanted to share
1: that's pretty cool what you brought last because that means that all of us can be disciples of yeshua and begin a walk with him um, and become like him and do greater things than he did. That's what he said, right? Like, we, can, we will do greater things that he did, which is pretty cool that we have this level of grace and mercy to start where we are in, and have the ability to reach higher levels of understanding and relationship with him. Uh, but I wanted to also share bef- before that was that um, – Sometimes we re- we study Torah and we read it and we're like, how in the world is this applicable to me? Uh, or, or how is this applicable today? But it's just like when we say, um, in due time, we will read what we sow. And, and that's applied to our spiritual growth and to our actions, right? To not get tired of doing good. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to studying Torah. That sometimes we might read things and we might study things that have, of that at that moment, we don't see a life application of it. But in due time, it will it will come to life for us and it will become applicable to us when the moment comes. So this is why in Judaism and Jewish practices, study every day, every day and night, and the Torah also commands us to, to teach it to our children day and night. And so we must be studying and reading and learning day and night. Um, because in due time, those, 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 that, those learnings and, 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 and searching and studying and, and searching for more uh, uh, um, understanding will come to life and it will become applicable. And there will be a time where it will become real in our life, where we will make those connections in our spirit, in our mind, and soul, and etc. So it, it doesn't always have to be, let me study Torah because I want something. Like I want to like let me open my Bible to get something in return, but instead it should be let me open the Bible so God can teach me. Like, what does this mean? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? Why did He say that? I have no idea why, but I'm gonna search for it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and, and it is and it's great information because it's the Word of God and His Word doesn't come back void. That's what it says, right? That's what the Torah tells us that it doesn't it never returns void. Uh, we just don't see it at that very moment, like okay, I just learned what the Levite does when he goes into the temple. But so what? Like I got to go to work tomorrow, <laughs> you know. Uh, and we don't know that, right? But in, in due time, as we continue to search, it becomes more real, becomes alive in our day-to-day walk with the Lord. So it's just that it's a matter of pressing forward in every aspect of life, not just praying, not just going to uh, uh, fellowship and gathering and and, 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 you know, having fellowship together, it, it's much more than that. It's every aspect when we eat, you know, when we are out and about, when we're reading at home with our friends, family, it's just this big picture of all of it, you know.
3: Very
6: good.
1: You want to say something?
6: I just wanted to mention something too on Ben's question on how is this, how can we practically, you know do these things but um it's i've i've personally experienced you know when you when you come to all these realizations of what the scripture really says you want to go and tell everybody and reveal it and this and that but the first thing we should do is apply it to our lives and walk it out and experience it for ourselves like doing shabbat eating kosher because then it transforms us and the opportunity always presents itself in due time. You know, we don't go around like the Pharisees and Sadducees nitpicking at everybody and judging everybody in this, you know, instead we transform our lives as he's given, just like when he tells Moses and um, Aaron and his son, these are the, um, what's it called? These are, this is the order. Now, now do it the way I've told you to do. And then Nadab and Abihu just, you know, oh yeah, let's go in, but it's not in the order. We've got to be transformed. We've got to learn and we've got to do it ourselves. And so that's what I found in my walk that was very hard. because I, like, I wanted to go tell my sister and my dad, and they might not have been there yet, you know. So I have to go and walk it out. And now, as I've been doing these things, um, you know, that opportunity comes and we can discern that, too. You know, and we have to be, we have to do it in love, you know. And so, you know, Yeshua walked around and people came to him. You know, people saw his light. He didn't just go around going this, that, the other, you know, they always came to him and said, Hey, you're doing something wrong. And then he's like, wait, 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 you're doing something wrong. You know? Mm -hmm. So practically wise, Ben, I feel like of course that zeal for us to go and reveal all this stuff is there, but we ourselves have to walk it out and be transformed and be set apart and be holy. Cause that's like the first thing I've noticed in my walk is, I'm so eager to tell other, but others, but it's like, God reveal that to you. Well, you reveal, it, you walk it out, you know, and we've got to um, experience it, I guess, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's really good. It makes me think about uh, the past in, in Deuteronomy, which I can't find. I don't know where it is, but having to do with the idea that when he says, like when you're, when the nations see you know, you carrying out the things of Torah, they'll say, wow, what, what wisdom, what a wise God this is. And so the, the nations see the others, other people see the wisdom of God's Torah and his word when it's reflected in our life. So Jamie, that's spot on. Anybody? Bo, Thea, anything?
2: Uh, yes. Um, uh, again, uh, great, great lesson day, Chris. And each one has had a part. And and I think uh, part of not judging other people is uh, like like she said, walking it out. Uh, but that's building a community. Uh, as you walk it out, then people uh, want what you have. They they desire what you have, and then that brings the questions, and you bring those. Uh, uh, you know, forth with answers, uh, but it's building a community. We can't, we can't re, rebuild the world. We can only build a community of believers just as God's followers were in the Bible. But I want to encourage uh, a couple of things. And then in Mark 7, uh, in the reading there, verse 14, it says, hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand Okay, that's a simple phrase there, but it is Jesus speaking. So he says, hearken and understand this. It's not what enters into the, uh, the man that uh, it, it is, uh, 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 excuse me, that entering in unto him uh, that defiles him, but the things which come out. Okay, and just as you said, we, and we're kind of talking about food, but if you look at Psalms 24, it talks about the gates. Now, what enters into our gates? Our gates are our orifices, our ears. Our ears digest, our eyes digest, our nose digest, our pores digest. So all these things are digesting things that we allow to come in. Now, sometimes it's by choice. We may turn on a certain Um, uh, something we're listening to that we may not need to be listening to, but now it's coming in and we have to digest it. Does it leave in that latrine or, or in fact, is it now seated and has a place in our mind? And then what comes forth from that uh, is really where the battle begins. So as we look at our life, um, I was able to go with Winston, Pastor Winston Hancock in in 2016. He and I made a trip to Jackson, Mississippi, and we were asked to speak at the Capitol building uh, in Jackson, Mississippi about the first, uh, this, this would have been 50 years. The first uh, clinical abortion was done there in Jackson. And that's why they had the, the, um, the meeting time, uh, 50 years. And at that time, there had been 56 million babies that had been uh, aborted uh, clinically. Now, no telling what others, but 56 million. And it was a beautiful rally and a beautiful uh, public speakers uh, uh, from the uh, uh, Congress. Many people were there and it really was a heart moving uh But the the Lord gave me this scripture here to encourage the women, because women especially, and we've all been battered and what have you, but again, as a woman has been raped or molested or assaulted sometimes, and I'm saying that because we realize we have a picture that they feel that they uh, are dirty, filthy, unworthy. And it's not, again, the scripture is what we spoke of when we were there in Jackson, Mississippi. It's not what goes into the body that defiles it. So saving that, that God-given child and saving and, and uh, nurturing that from your heart is what grows that baby. And by the way there, i just give praise to God that there was a young man that was 40 years old that his mother chose not to not to abort him and he was a preacher speaking on the steps of the capitol building that day and there were several others that their mothers who chose not to and fought the battle and and then praises to god so uh, I'm, I'm saying that to uh, not to uh, strike a nerve with anyone but to encourage us that again it's not what goes in that defiles us it's what we do after uh that assault or after we hear something we should have not heard or seen something on tv it's what we do with that to remove that to let it go into the latrine if you will and then become and then walk it out uh as i was already spoken of and in cleaning our lives up and building a community
0: amen thank you bo excellent all right well let's pray lord we give you great thanks and praise We thank you for you are holy, and we thank you that you have chosen us, that we too could come and follow you to be holy. Lord, we ask that uh, we would keep our eyes fixed on Yeshua, Lord, that we would seek you out to know you, to understand your word, to, to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, that we would order our footsteps according to your word, Lord, that you would prepare us to receive what you're pouring out in this time. Lord, that we would willingly follow you wherever you desire us to go. And we ask that your light would shine in us and through us, and we bless you and thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member, and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.